We thank you for this time in your son's precious, holy, and worthy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We have taken a little bit of a break from our study in the book of Daniel. We're doing a couple standalone sermons. As we exit summer, we'll head back into our study in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, we looked at Psalm 116 a few weeks ago. We looked at the prodigal son last week. And this morning, I want us to think about communication and about conflict. I want us to contemplate conflict. Life is filled with millions of moments of communication. And if we're honest, most often miscommunication. You misinterpret, you misunderstand, you mishear what somebody has said. Sometimes it's words that we misunderstand or we mishear. My wife keeps a little uh, notepad on her phone of all of the funny, silly sayings or things that our kids have said over the years. At Christmas time a few years ago, my son held up a Christmas ornament and he said, Mommy, what's this? And my wife said, It's a decoration. And he said, Oh, of independence. <laughs> my wife realized, Hey, we're doing good on homeschooling, uh, but Christmas. My son said, Mom, what does hark mean and why do they say Harold when that's the bad guy? Hannah said, Why is Harold the bad guy? He said, You know, the bad leader who wanted to kill Jesus. And she said, Oh, you mean Herod? And he just smiled and went, Oh. And when my daughter turned three, I said, Chelsea, you're officially three. And she said, I'm a fish? Sometimes it's not understanding the heart behind what's being said. I was teaching our kids about Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And I said, is there anything that you can do to get to heaven on your own? And Ethan said, yeah, build a ladder. <laughs> no. Chelsea was making pancakes for the family all by herself. My wife said, Chelsea, you're doing such a great job. And Chelsea said, thanks, I learned from the best. Hannah blushed and said, oh, that's so sweet. And Chelsea said, I hear people say that all the time. I don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea once said, Daddy, why do you read your Bible? I said, so that I can know and obey God. And she said, well, I don't know God because I can't find my Bible anywhere. <laughs> Sometimes it's just being thoroughly confused altogether and not understanding anything that's being said. Tyler said that he wanted to marry Chelsea. We said that's not possible because God wants people to make new families, so we can't marry each other. So Ethan started asking about our families and our family trees and our family histories, about the Carmichael family, about the Brown family. My wife talked about not being in my family and then marrying into my family, about her parents being the grandparents, about my parents being the grandparents, all these different confusing family trees. And Tyler said, completely confused, wait, who are our real parents? <laughs> we all have moments in life when there's those funny forms of miscommunication, but often miscommunication leads to conflict. We will all have conflict in life. We all have had conflict. We are all going to have conflict. It's inevitable. It's at work. It's in marriage. It's with children. It's with friends. It's literally everywhere. And if you try to run and hide from it, you will be miserable most of your life. And we don't typically go through classes where we talk about how to resolve conflict. And if we're honest, our parents typically aren't the best examples of how to resolve conflict. So we really don't know what we're talking about 
when we're talking about how to resolve conflict. Praise the Lord, he has spoken, and he tells us how we are to communicate. So this morning, I want us to ask three questions, and we're going to go all over the place in the Bible to answer these questions. Number one, where does conflict come from? What's the source of our conflict? Number two, what is the part that we play in conflict? What do we do that makes conflict worse? And then question number three, what can we do to make conflict stop? What can we do to try and be peacemakers? So where does conflict come from? What do we do that makes conflict happen? And what can we do to be peacemakers? We will find some of those answers in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Would you read along with me as we read God's holy word? James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of corals or arguments, some of your translations might say, and conflicts or fights among you? Is not the source your pleasures or your desires that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures or on your desires. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time as we dive into this incredibly practical, relevant topic this morning. Father, thank you for your word that does not leave us to our own devices. Our flesh kicks against it every single time, even now. We may be fighting against the idea of thinking about ourselves in the midst of conflict, of thinking about ourselves being the problem in conflict. God, grant grace and humility in this room right now. And I pray that through your word being preached, there would be conflicts even today that would begin on the road to reconciliation. God, may we never be people that become bitter, angry, Allow conflict just to exist and not deal with it. Make us unafraid. Father, I think so often as we, as we stare at conflict, we think this is, this is not going to end well. And because of our fear, it keeps us from doing what we know we're supposed to do. So make us bold, make us compassionate, make us humble, make us gracious, make us like Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Three main questions regarding conflict, the sources and the solutions for conflict. And right off the bat, I want to just ask that you would be praying throughout this sermon to fight against your inner lawyer. That inner lawyer that's going to rise up as this sermon is going on, as the word is being preached, that inner lawyer is going to rise up and say, Yeah, but you have a reason to to not do that. Yeah, but that's not about you. Yeah, let's think about somebody else. And I just want to encourage all of us, just turn off the inner lawyer, take the day off, receive the word with meekness, and then also don't point the finger at somebody else. Uh, You you might hear that we're talking about conflict, and you might think, oh man, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. Let's not think about others. Let's think about us. Question number one, why do conflicts exist? Why do conflicts exist? What's the source 
of the conflicts that we go through? That's the question that James is answering in James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures or your desires that wage war in your members? We tend to think that it is because of the other person that conflict exists. If only they understood us, then we wouldn't have conflict. We say things like, you make me so mad. As in, if you weren't here, there wouldn't be conflict. But because you're here, I'm angry. But according to this passage, that's not true. According to this passage, where do conflicts come from? Are they in us or outside of us? The source is not outside. The source is in us. Circumstances and other people are not the source of the conflict that we go through. The source of the conflict that you are going through is you. Specifically, it's inside of you. It's the desire that has risen up within you to cause an argument because you are not getting what you're wanting or you're getting something that you're not wanting. James says it's the pleasures or desires. It's the Greek word hedone, where we get hedonism from. Strong desires could be bad things, yes, but most often it's good things. It's good desires that we have that become inordinate desires because they take the place of God. They, they are idols in our heart because we seek to be satisfied in them more than we seek to be satisfied in our Savior. Paul Tripp says it this way, what controls our hearts will exercise inescapable influence over our lives and behavior. So whatever's controlling your heart is what brings about conflict because what you desire most, if you're not getting it, you're going to be angry that you're not getting it. Maybe it's a friendship that you desire. Maybe it's acceptance. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's safety. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's love. Those are all fine. Those are all good. But if they ever grow to a position of authority and control over your heart, they become sinful. And therefore, and we say often, God has given us great gifts. But God's gifts make terrible gods. They will always let us down. They will always cause conflict. Our conflict is rooted in our desires not being met. Desires are all a part of human experience and existence, but they must be held with an open hand. Not my will, but yours be done. This is something I desire, but if I don't get it, that's okay. Again, Paul Tripp says, if my heart is ruled by a certain desire, then there are only two ways I can respond to you. If you're helping me get what I want, I will be happy with you. But if you stand in my way, I will be angry and frustrated and discouraged when I'm with you. There will be even times when I wish that you weren't in my life. So, where do conflicts come from? They come from the desires in us that are going unmet. Paul Tripp asks a great question that will help diagnose what that idol might be. If you ever find yourself in conflict, if you ever find yourself angry, impatient, uh, moody, uh, despondent, struggling in a relationship, ask this question. What are you getting that you're not wanting? Or what are you wanting that you're not getting? What are you getting that you're not wanting? What are you wanting that you're not getting? And as you answer that question honestly, it'll take you deep into your heart to see the idol of your heart that's controlling what you desire the most. And since that other person isn't giving that to you, there's going to be conflict. That's why for us, when we look at verse 4, 
spiritual adultery is loving the world more than God or loving anything more than God. So for us as a church, our mission is to magnify God, spreading a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus above all things. Because if we did that perfectly, there wouldn't be conflict. So question number one, where does conflict come from? And, and you can think about the conflict you're going through right now. We are all human, human, we have relationships, we are all involved in relationships to one degree or another, and so I'm sure that we all have some level of conflict with somebody in our lives. What's the source of that conflict? It's your spiritual idolatry, it's my spiritual idolatry, it's something in my heart, a desire that I have that is not being met. Question number two. What do we do that escalates the conflict? What do we do, what part do we play in putting fuel on the fire of those conflicts? Let me just give you a couple. By the way, this is just high level. We're not going to go in depth on every single one of these things. These are just high level. Take one thing. You can write all the notes you want, but just take one thing and and, uh, just marinate in that one issue, that one thing that the Lord might be pressing upon your conscience. Number one, we tend to assume What do we do that escalates the conflict? What do we do that uh, puts fuel on the fire of our conflicts? Uh, We have the source. The source is our desires. And then as we're in a conflict, what do we do that keeps that conflict going instead of uh, making it dissipate? Number one, we tend to assume. We tend to assume. We instantly go from seeing somebody do something or say something to assuming their motive behind it. We often take a thing that someone does and attach a motive to it. I've seen this in church. Literally, I've seen this in church where somebody will tell me, I think so-and-so has a problem with me. And when I ask them, why do you think that? They will say, well, they didn't say hi to me at church today. Do you know why they didn't say hi to, to you at church? Do you know why they didn't talk to you? And the honest answer that people will give is, no, but I'm guessing it's because they have something wrong with me. You can't go there. I've said that to some of you actually before, right? You can't go there. You can't assume that. You have to go to the person and ask. I remember talking to somebody and they found out that the other person had one of those uh, AirPods in their ear and they were talking to somebody on the phone. And so as they walked past, the the other individual couldn't see that they were on the phone. And so they were just walking by and, and the person said, hello, it's good to see you. The person didn't say anything back because they didn't hear because they were on the phone talking to somebody. They didn't know So often we just assume. We go from, I see you doing something, to I know why you did it. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. Presumption leads to nothing but strife. If you assume somebody's heart motive, number one, you've disobeyed God's word, and number two, God's word is going to happen where your assumptions will lead to strife. Instead, we should obey God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love believes all things and hopes all things. So I'm okay with you assuming the other person's motive as long as you're assuming it in a positive direction. I'm guessing that they couldn't say hi to me because they were so busy in ministry and they were going to talk to somebody and then they were going to come back, double back around to me and talk to me. I'm okay with that. The Bible's okay with that. Assume the best. You might say, well, you don't understand. I know because they always do this. This is their pattern. So I can totally assume their motive because they're always doing the same thing. I would just encourage you, love believes that they have changed. Love believes that they're going to change. You assume they're going to change. It's actually incredibly prideful to assume someone's motives. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
verses 4 through 5, Paul talks about his own motives, his own conscience. He says, I'm not conscious of anything in myself against God, any form of active rebellion against God, but I'm not acquitted by this because the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, don't go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring uh, both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So Paul says, I think as much as I can tell from my heart motives that I haven't done anything in direct rebellions and defiance against God, but I don't even know that about myself. So Paul says, I think that I know my heart's uh, motives, but I don't even know fully, so I can't fully say I know why I do the things that I do. And if we can't know the things about our own hearts, the motives about our own hearts, then it's really prideful to think that we can know the motive about somebody else's heart. Don't assume. Assume in the right direction. Assume believing the best, hoping the best. And just ask. Just ask. Instead of assuming, ask. Go to somebody and say, hey, can I ask you a question? A phrase that I use all the time with my wife, with my friends, with anyone that I come into conflict with, I ask, can you help me understand? I want to know. Can you help me understand when you did this? Can you help me understand why you did this? Can you help me understand? And then, as they speak their motive, their heart motive, I would also encourage restating what they've said. When you're saying this, are you meaning this? Restate it so that you're trying to understand. Miscommunication, misinterpretation happens all the time. So go humbly into that conversation and don't assume, but ask. When you did this, can I ask why you did that? Don't assume their motive. We assume, number two, we judge we judge. What do we do that escalates the conflict? We assume someone's motives, and then we judge their motive. We assume we know their motive, and then we judge that that motive is wrong. Now, judgment is difficult in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says we're not supposed to judge in a certain way. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we're supposed to judge. So we're not to, and we are to. So how do we know the difference? Let's just quickly go through how we know how we're supposed to judge and how we're not supposed to judge, okay? Number one, if this is a personal preference or an opinion that you have, however deep that conviction is, if it's just an opinion, you cannot judge somebody if they don't share that opinion. If it's just an opinion, remember our study in the, in the book uh, Conscience, that study of the conscience in that book Conscience. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, you have two people that have diametrically opposed views, and God says, both are acceptable before me. Why? Because the issue that they're wrestling with is not a biblical principle issue, it's a personal preference issue. So if it's a personal preference, however deeply you hold that conviction, if it's a personal preference, you can't judge somebody that they're wrong and you're right if it's your opinion, if it's your conviction. Now, however, if it's plain that sin is explicitly involved and you know that they have explicitly uh, sinned against a biblical passage, they violated a biblical command, then you can go. But my question is, before you go to judge somebody, do you have a chapter and verse that you can clearly say, I think that you broke this aspect of God's word? Not just feeling deeply about something that someone said. You can never impose your preference on another person. That's forbidden biblically. Therefore, it has to be a clear biblical command that's been violated, and if not, you can't judge. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says that he can judge the man who is involved in that affair with his mother-in-law. Paul says you can judge that. That's an absolutely wrong, sinful relationship. That's wrong. 
it was clear that it was wrong. Same thing in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Peter and Paul have a disagreement, and Paul judges Peter because of that eating, the the dietary restrictions, that uh, food issue. Peter was overruling grace, and so Paul says, that's wrong. But you can't judge somebody if it's just a personal preference. Secondly, you can't judge somebody if their motives have not yet been spoken. You can't judge somebody if their motives haven't been spoken. Again, this goes back to the assumption. You assume somebody's motive and then you judge their motive. But you can't do that if you haven't heard explicitly what their motive was. You can't assume it and you can't judge it. Unless they explicitly tell you this is why I did what I did. The moment you go to the why question, you're going to something that's hidden and unknown. So you have to ask. Don't assume, don't judge, ask. Once the motives are spoken, then the heart has been revealed and you can graciously interact with it. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So once the words communicate, here's the motive that I was going with, here's why I did what I did, then you can ask questions about that motive. But grace will always encourage you to ask and clarify before you ever judge somebody's motives. Thirdly, you cannot judge somebody if you haven't first judged yourself. This is Matthew chapter 7. You cannot judge someone else before you first evaluate yourself. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Just think about that picture. If you have a log in your eye, number one, you can't see clearly what the other person's problem is. You know it's a speck, but you can't really see it. Number two, you're probably blind. If you have a a log in your own eye and it's jutting out to one side, you probably can't even see how long that log is. What if it's going directly this way, but it's stuck in your eye? You don't even know. So you're blind to your own problem. So number one, you can't see clearly the other person's problem. Number two, you're blind to the totality of your own problem. And number three, if that plank's going forward and you're trying to come near that person to help them, you're going to keep poking them in the eye. You're going to keep hitting them in the face with the problem that you have. So you're going to keep on pushing them away. So that's why Jesus says, if you have something against a brother or a sister and you need to go to them, first, take the log out of your own eyes so that you can have a relationship with them or else you're just going to keep pushing them away. So, what do we do that adds fuel to the fire of conflict? We assume, we judge. We judge unbiblically when we are called to judge biblically, but we judge unbiblically. And then finally, what do we do that throws fuel on the fire? We just tend to react. We tend to react. Go to Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, Paul talks about a list. Verse 31, let all bitterness, there's six things he's going to describe here. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with malice. All of these things must be put away from you. A very angry person is being described in verse 31. And whenever we interact with somebody who is involved in conflict, who we are involved with in conflict, we tend to react to their bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice by just reacting with like. Like, reacting with like. You're angry, so I'm just going to react by being angry. We tend to just sinfully react. Instead, we should, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So don't react to someone's anger. Act like Christ. Receive their anger as hard as that is. Receive it 
with grace. That's being like Christ. So, question number one, what causes conflict? It's our idols. It's the idols, it's the desires that we have in our heart that we're fighting to get or we're angry that we're not getting. Secondly, what do we do that adds fuel to the fire? We tend to assume, we tend to judge, and we tend to sinfully react. So finally, the question is, how are we supposed to respond? How can we be peace? Makers, how what, what must we do to resolve conflicts? And before we go into the points, we need to realize that we need to resolve conflict. Don't just leave it alone. Unresolved conflicts destroys your life. It brings bitterness, anger, it makes messes out of what's going on in your life. If I can quote the wise sage. Master Jedi Yoda. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. He's not wrong. Your anger, your conflicts that you are not allowing God to work in will just lead to suffering. They lead to bitterness. And as we've said before, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping that it kills the other person. It doesn't work. When you don't resolve conflict, it will hinder your fellowship with God. You cannot be right with God and wrong with people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you have conflict in your life and you just say, I don't need to resolve it, I'm fine staying angry at that person, it will hinder your fellowship with God. It will also hinder your prayer life if you are a husband, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, she's a woman. Show her honor as a fellow heir of grace, of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands, if you have conflict with your wives and you are not willing to deal with that conflict, it will hinder your prayer life. And for all of us, if you go without resolving conflict in your life, if you just choose, I'm going to let it go, I'm not going to deal with it, I'm just going to stay mad at that person, it will hinder your ultimate happiness. James chapter 3, verse 18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you will receive the fruit of righteousness and peace if you sow the seeds of peace. You've got to do the work. Resolving conflict takes work. But you will be blessed. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. You will be blessed. You will be happy. You will be satisfied if you fight hard to stop fighting. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does not say, blessed are uh, the, the peacekeepers. As in, uh, you just had one good conversation and you don't have to work at it anymore. No, no, this is a peacemaker. You have work that you're going to keep doing. Notice it's not avoiders. Blessed are the avoiders. It's not the appeasers. It's not the cowardice. It's blessed are the peacemakers. So how do we go about making peace in conflict in our lives? Let me give you five things. Again, this is high level. But take one of these and pray. Ask the Lord to work in your own life, in your own conflict, and maybe act on one of these five things. Number one. If there is conflict in your life, the first thing that you do is you ask God for wisdom. 
You ask him for wisdom. You ask him for help. You say, God, what is my part in this? What have I done? I know that I view myself better than anyone views me. I am my greatest champion. And so therefore, I think so highly of myself, I probably don't even see what I did to enact this conflict. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So ask the Lord for wisdom. Ask the Lord for patience and humility. Know that as you're going into the conflict, you don't know everything. You don't know why the conflict's happening. Ultimately, you need the other person to help you understand what your idols are. You're wanting to learn. You're needing to grow. So go into that conversation with humility and wisdom. Number two, race to reconcile. Race to reconcile. After you've asked God for wisdom, go. Make the first move. Don't put it off. Make it happen. Any conflict that you put off will only become harder to resolve. So often people try to let time heal all wounds. You've heard that saying before? That doesn't work. Try that with an injury. Break your wrist and just go, it'll get better with time. No, you need to do some hard work. You need to get it cast. You need to get it set. There's going to be painful moments. There's going to be hard things. You don't just let time heal it. The only way to resolve the conflict is to face it. And I know that that's scary. I know that there are many, even in this room, that are terrified of conflict. They just run away. They avoid it altogether. It's not going to ultimately fix the problem in your relationship and the idol in your own heart. The Bible says that we are to go. Matthew chapter 5, write these verses down. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, you know this. If you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before you go to the altar, before you present it. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So if you know that your brother has something against you, you don't have something against them, but you know that they have something against you, you cannot wait. I've heard many people say this. Well, I think that they have a problem with me, but if they have a problem with me, then they can come tell me. That's going to bring conflict. Instead, you should go to them and say, I think that I did something to offend you. Can you help me understand? You, you don't wait. If you know that somebody has something, if you think that you know that somebody has something, go to them. If it's something that you have against them. Matthew 18 says that you go and show them their fault. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's two Greek words for rebuke. And I love the word that Jesus uses. There's kind of the, the, the lawyer rebuking where uh, you're kind of in their face. You've got your list. You've got your argument ready. You're debating them and you're showing them that they're wrong. There's another word that's used here. It's not the word for that kind of arguing, uh, debating, here's why I know you're wrong, kind of a, a language of rebuke. There's another word in the Greek that's uh, tender. It's kind of an uncertain. It's seeking uh, counsel. It's, it's a tentative. It's trying to figure it out. That's the word that's used in Luke 17. I think that there's an issue. I think that you did something, but I'm not sure, and I want to ask, because I'm not going to assume your motive, and I'm not going to judge your motives. So, if you know someone has something against you, the Bible says go. If you, have somebody against, if you have something against somebody else, the Bible says go. So there's no biblical allowance for you not to go. You have to go. 
So often we don't. So often we decide, I'm just going to wait. And this happens a lot in relationships. I've heard it said that there are two types of people. There's skunks and there's turtles. Uh, skunks just get angry and, you know, throw out the mess. I just don't like you. Turtles just hide, right? And usually, husbands and wives, it, it, turtles and skunks find each other, and they marry each other. <laughs> and so there's a skunk just saying, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, and the turtle's saying, you can be angry all you want, I'm just hiding here. We aren't supposed to be angry, we also aren't supposed to hide. We're supposed to race to reconcile. Now, that does not mean that every issue is going to have the same degree of uh, kind of a, a profoundness and a depth to it. There are going to be some issues where you have to say, hey, I think we need to talk. And it's a sit down, and it's long. And then there's going to be some that you, you just need to say, hey, when you did this, can I ask, what did you mean? Not every conflict has the same degree of severity to it. But go. Don't wait, Go. And honestly, maybe that's what the Lord would have for you this morning. Maybe the Lord would have for you this morning, there's a conflict going on in your life, a relationship, and you've just been wondering, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to address this? Maybe this morning, all God is saying is, just go. Go with humility and go ask questions and make it right. Number one, as we are going to attempt to be... uh, Resolving the conflict, number one, we ask wisdom of God. We pray and we ask God to give us wisdom. Number two, we race to reconcile. We go, we make the first move, we don't wait. Number three, we go with humility. Number three, we go with humility. Can I just plead with you? When you go to somebody and there's some sense of a conflict going on between you, always begin with what's your fault. Always begin with what's your fault. And if you don't know what was your fault in the matter, see point number one. Ask the Lord. If somebody around you knows the conflict that's happening, say, what part did I play in this? I, I, I tend to not like the words always and never. We, we use, those, those are kind of curse words at my house. My, my kids will say this all, you know, they'll look at each other and say, you always do that. And I'll stop and say, is that being honest? Is there, has there ever been one time when they didn't do that thing? Come on, let's speak the truth. I know that that's the perception that you have, and maybe it's true that that's the majority of the time, but not always. Let's speak the truth. So I try to not use the words always and never. But in this case, I think that there is always something that we can own in a conflict. Maybe it's 99% their fault, but maybe it's your reaction. You can own that. Maybe it's that you weren't a patient enough person that they felt they couldn't come talk to you. I think that there's always something. Now, maybe there's outliers where you have done nothing wrong, perhaps. But go humbly. Ask them. If you don't know, and you're asking the Lord, and you don't know what you did, may the first question that comes out of your mouth in a conflict resolution be, can I ask you, what did I do that was wrong here? I want to grow. I want to know. I did something to hurt you, and I want to own that. Make a list of what you did that was wrong. Husbands, can I, can I give you a question? This is one of my favorite questions that I heard a pastor ask. Go to your wife, and anyone can do this with a friend, but husbands, we need to do this today. Go to your wife and say, 
if I were not to respond negatively, what's one thing that I need to work on? If I were not to respond sinfully with anger and impatience, which I know I am often to do, if you knew that whatever you said would be met with grace and a heart that's receiving it and ready to change, what's one thing I need to work on? What's one thing that I could fix? What's one thing that I could change that could make our relationship better? Ask that question. First, ask the Lord for wisdom, then race to that moment, and then go with humility. Another phrase that is very helpful that I often use in some form or another is just, I'm sorry, I was thinking about myself. I'm sorry, please forgive me, I was just thinking about myself. Maybe that's why the conflict began. Maybe that's what I can own in the conflict. I was just not really thinking about you, and I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Whatever it is, when you're making that first step towards reconciliation, go with humility. There's always something that you can own. Find that something. Don't be inflexible. Learn, grow, be well-rounded. Listen for their hurt. Ask them, how did I hurt you? And, And please note, the way that we speak in these moments is so profoundly either helpful or harmful. If you say to somebody, why were you hurt? You might be thinking, I'm asking you, what did I do that hurt you? But if you ask that question, why were you hurt? You are implying in that question, I didn't do anything. You just are easily offended by everything. And so therefore, tell me why you were hurt again. So you go, you pray, you ask the Lord for wisdom, you race to reconcile, and you go with humility trying to make the first move. And you say, why were you hurt? And then everything blows up. And you wonder, why did my conflict resolution skills not work? It's very clear. You didn't go with humility. You didn't ask the question the way that you should be asking the question, which is ownership. Where instead of asking, why are you hurt? You compassionately say, what did I do that hurt you? What did I do that offended you? That is what we must do. Don't be inflexible. As the scriptures say, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to to become angry. And when you speak to somebody, when you ask them, listen for their hurt, listen for what you've done to cause that conflict, to cause that offense. Also, just a side note, if somebody's asking you the question, what did I do to offend you? I've seen this be a place where conflict resolution goes awry as well because the other person might say something to the effect of, oh, you don't know? You should already know. You don't even know how you hurt me? Well, that hurts me again. (laughs) You should already know how you hurt me. Don't, Don't respond that way. If somebody is graciously coming to you saying, how did I hurt you? Respond with grace and saying, I really appreciate you asking the question. I'd love to have a dialogue about it. Don't be so inflexible that you don't, Seek to grow. Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Listen before speaking. Be considerate of their fears, of their doubts. Romans chapter 15, verse 2. We tend to think that our fears are rational and the other person's fears are irrational. But don't do that. Go with humility. Go with grace. Go with tact. Go with patience. And go knowing that 
the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to win your brother or your sister. The goal is to reconcile. The goal is restoration. So stay focused on that goal. And if you focus on that goal, often whatever the issue is becomes very trivial. If you help the other person know, I love you, and I want to win you, and I know there's something that I've done that's caused a rift in our relationship, and I want to win you back because this is my fault, and I need to help fix whatever's going on. I need to restore this relationship. Often, whatever the issue is, just it's easier to, to deal with it because that person knows you love them and you care about them. You can disagree without being disagreeable. You can walk hand in hand together without seeing eye to eye. You can be united together without uniformity. And often our biggest arguments tend to be over the smallest things. So stay humble, especially, especially stay humble, not only in your going to somebody to resolve conflict, but stay humble when they are going to you to confront you. And if somebody does confront you, if they bring something to you, if they say, hey, this is something I've been struggling, this is some area that you hurt me, this is an offense that's happened, when it's all done and you've owned everything that they've said, ask them, is there anything more that you want to say? Is there anything else that I've done? We, we tend, when we receive criticism, we tend to either shut it all down or take it all and say, you know, we're the worst person in the world. No. God's sovereign. He's your judge. Leave your reputation with him. Receive the confrontation that somebody might bring and listen and grow. Ask what truth is there to the perception that the other person has. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6. Ask others in your life if they see similar uh, areas where the other person has confronted you. Proverbs 15 verses 31 through 33. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. But whoever neglects discipline despises himself. Whoever listens to reproof acquires understanding. We want to grow in our understanding. And whenever there's criticism in your life, if somebody is confronting you, just always say, God's humbling me. God's using this to humble me. So go with humility. Number one, when we are going to resolve conflict, we ask the Lord for help. We ask for wisdom. Number two, after asking the Lord for wisdom, we go. We race to reconcile. Number three, we go in humility. We go in patience. We go with grace. Number four, we speak the truth in love. Number four, we speak the truth in love. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. You know it. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Jesus himself, right? John chapter 1, full of grace and truth. Be like Christ in the way that you speak. Speak the truth in love. Therefore, don't be a non-tucker and don't be a I speak the truth guy. Speak the truth in love. Don't do one to the exclusion of the other. Whenever we elevate our argument or elevate our anger, we've forgotten how to resolve conflict. And by the way, our anger doesn't work anyway. It doesn't work to restore anything, to, to get what we want. You're not persuasive when your speech is abrasive. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You never get your point across when you're mad. Just think of customer service, right? If you call customer service and you're super angry and you're just yelling, you messed up, make it right. Versus just saying, hey, I had a problem here. Can you help me? In my experience, 
almost always it goes much better the other direction <laughs> than when I'm yelling on the phone. Truth without love is resisted. Truth spoken in love is received. There are people, specifically in our circles, uh, we tend to be truth people, right? We, we are men and women of the book. We're men and women of the scriptures. We tend to be truth people. And there are people that I've heard that have said things like, well, I just tell it like it is. I'm a truth guy. Which when I hear that, I just hear somebody admitting that they're a jerk, right? I'm a truth guy. Oh, so you're a jerk. Great. Speaking the truth without love, no matter how true it is, is not right. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It does not just matter what you say. It matters how you say it. It doesn't just matter what you say. It matters how you say it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the opening of that chapter, you can speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but if you do not have love, it profits you what? Nothing. You could literally speak the most truthful, honest, biblical realities, but if it's not done in love, it doesn't profit you anything at all. It profits you nothing. So, we need to have tests for what we say, why we say what we say, how we say what we say. Speaking the truth in love. Never uh, a false thing coming from our mouth spoken lovingly. No, that's that's just uh, flattery, right? Saying something that's untrue but lovingly? No, that's just flattery. And never truth absent from love. That's unbiblical as well. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. You know this verse. Write it down. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, to give grace to all who hear. So an overarching principle for all of our speech it should always edify and encourage. No unwholesome word proceeding from your mouth. That word unwholesome is dying or decaying. You should never uh, send words out of your mouth that are death-giving, that are dying, that are decaying words. And Paul gives us a test in Ephesians chapter 4, 29. Does it edify? Does it build somebody up? Does it fit the need of the moment? And does it give grace to all who hear? Maybe it's the right thing to say but the wrong time, so don't say it. Maybe it's the right thing to say, but the wrong audience, so don't say it. It has to build up, it has to fit the need of the moment, and it has to give grace to all who hear. That means that there should be off-limit words in our speech. There should be things that we would never say. There should be words and phrases that we should never say. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 gives us a list. But now... You also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Anything that's abusive speech, that's anger, that's wrath, that's malice, that's slander, put it all away. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Be, be patient when wronged, be gentle when correcting, and never be quarrelsome. 
That leads us to number five, finally. So we ask for wisdom. We ask God for wisdom, number one. We race to reconcile. We make the first move, number two. We go in humility and patience and kindness, number three. We speak the truth in love. Those need to be combined together. And number five, we are patient. Number five, be patient. Give the Spirit time to do the work that he's going to do. Don't, at the end of that conversation where you have done some form of conflict resolution, don't say, great, are you okay? Are we done? Do we have to have another conversation? Is it all finished now? No, no, be patient. Be patient. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33, the churning of milk produces butter, the pressing of the nose brings forth blood, and the churning of anger produces strife. Be patient as you bring things to somebody because if you're pressing the issue, if you're pressing, yeah, but you just don't understand, you just don't get it. It's like pressing the nose, it's going to produce blood, it's going to produce strife. There's a time and a place to say something, to confront, there's a time and a place to leave it alone. Be patient. Even what we read earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. God's going to give the the gift of repentance. You cannot make somebody change with your anger, your passion, your frustration. So be patient. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul gives us a beautiful list of those three types of people that you know, we need to rebuke the unruly. We need to be uh, kind and gentle with the faint-hearted and encourage them. We need to help the weak. And then it says, but be patient with all. Be patient with all. Be patient with all of them in different ways. We need to deal differently with different people, but be patient with all. And as you are addressing whatever the issue is, address the issue. Don't attack the person. Be patient with the person. That person's not your enemy. Sin is your enemy. Guess what? In the midst of conflict resolution, you can grab hold of the other person's hand and fight against sin because sin is your enemy, not that person. So often, the way that I see conflict resolution happening is kind of a face-to-face. I'm facing the other person, they're my enemy, and I'm going to lob my grenades at them and prove why they're wrong. No wonder we have these rifts in our relationship. Instead, go to your brother, go to your sister, grab their hand and say, it's not me facing you, it's us hand-in-hand facing sin. We're on the same team, that's our enemy. If you do it this way, though, if you're fighting somebody, you're never going to even address the issue. Just look at politics, right? Politics is the classic example. Both sides are just attacking each other. They're not addressing the issues. And so nothing ever gets done because they're not addressing the issue. They're just attacking the other person. And when we do that, the devil wins the day. When we do that, the devil wins. The devil's name, diabolos in Greek, literally means the one who throws between. Uh, Dia, to to place through or between. Balo means to throw. So diabolos is to throw between, to throw in the middle, to divide. That's what the devil wants. He just wants to divide. And he uses our assuming, he uses our judgmentalism, he uses our critical spirits, he uses our pride, our selfishness, our easily offendedness. He uses all of that to divide us. Even here in this room, he wins the day if we come to church thinking, I know I have a problem with that other person who's at church, but I can be in the same church with them and I'm okay. If you have anything against somebody in this church, let's, let's fix it. Let's go make it right. Let's not let the devil win. Fight for unity. Paul Tripp, in his excellent book, What Did You Expect?, which is 
technically a marriage book, but it just fits for relationships, period. He says that every married couple should make these six different commitments, and I would just say every relationship should make these six different commitments. Number one, we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness that's happening on an ongoing basis because we're humble, we know we've sinned, we know we've messed up, and we want to grow. Number two, we will make growth and change our daily agenda. Number three, we will work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. Number four, we will commit to building a relationship of love. Number five, we will deal with our differences with appreciation and grace. And number six, we will work to protect our relationship. So, if you find yourself in conflict, you ask God for wisdom, you race to reconcile, you go with humility, you speak the truth in love, and you're patient throughout the whole process. And it's going to happen again and again and again. Turn back to James chapter 4. Let's end where we began. James chapter 4. How do we combat the pleasures and desires that wage war in our, in our bodies and in our hearts? Verse 7. James chapter 4 verse 7. <clears throat> Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn over your sin. Weep over your sin. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. How do we combat the conflict in our lives, the passions, the desires that wage war in our hearts? We live out that list that James just gave us. How do we live out that list on a daily basis? We have to stay at the foot of the cross. We have to stay at the foot of the cross. I told our brother Sergio, we were hanging out this last week, and I said, most sermons that we preach, this is a very different sermon from sermons that are normally preached here, most sermons that we preach go deep into doctrine, deep into one passage, deep into theology, and then we pull out of that application. So we've got this massive foundation of theology and doctrine in the scriptures, and then based off of that, we ask the so what. This sermon's really the exact opposite. It's a flip. We basically ask the so what the entire time together, but you cannot live out these principles if you don't root them in the doctrine and theology of the cross. So often conflict happens and we, we start to look for our own interests instead of being like Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 who did not look out for his own interests but looked out for our interests, who humbled himself. That's why Paul says, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Yeah, but you don't know how badly they've offended me. I don't. And I know that it hurts, but I do know this. Add up every single sin anyone in your life has ever and will ever commit against you and put that on one side of the scale and put one sin that you committed against God on the other side of the scale and it knocks all of those off. Our, just one sin we commit against God 
is so much more offensive and hurtful than all of the sins people will commit against us. And I'm not trying to downplay the offense and the hurt. I'm trying to show you how amazing the love of God is. That he would overcome the hurt that our sin and the rebellion that our sin is enacting against him. He doesn't wait for us. How often do you hear that? Well, I'll wait until they're ready to talk to me. You guys remember that old song? I used to sing it in high school. You did not wait for me to draw near to you. But you clothed yourself in frail humanity. You did not wait for me to cry out to you. But you let, you heard my voice calling to you. And so I'm forever grateful. I'm forever grateful. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. God did not wait for you to make the first move. He ran to you. Luke 15, we saw it on Sunday. Last week, a prodigal son, he ran to you. He didn't wait for you to make the first move to become a friend. Romans chapter 5, while we were his enemies, he loved us and he gave himself for us. So how do we live out everything that we've covered that's very just practical, the so what about conflict resolution? How do we live it out? We live it out by going to the cross and staring at the love of our Savior and living on that love and living out that love in everything we do. Let's ask God to help us as we do that, maybe even today, as we live out the love of Christ with others around us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your grace that has allowed us here today to hear how we are to think of conflict resolution, how we are to think of communication, how we are to walk through and work through the problems and the conflicts that we have in life. And God, I know that they're painful. I don't want to minimize that. I want us to maximize and magnify the glory of Jesus Christ at the cross who gave himself for us while we were yet sinners and made us alive in him. May we go with grace and compassion, with humility and patience, even today. And may we be a church family who is known for unity with each other and with the world around us, as much as is possible with us. God, thank you that your word even says there are going to be some who will not allow peace to be made. So as far as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. But God, may we be vigilant in attempting to be peacemakers, not being avoiders, but being like you, making that first move and loving the unlovely because you first loved us and we must love one another. How can we who have been forgiven so much not forgive others? God, round off our sharp edges even today. Humble us, shatter our pride so that we would be a gracious, compassionate, peaceful church all for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen.